You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. So as you know, on Communion Sundays, we have the great privilege of having our kids uh, stay in and hang out with us. Um, I said this last month. I'll say it again. I'll probably keep saying it. If you are a parent or an adult loved one of a child in this room and said child is acting like a child, we love it. We're here for it. Yes, we want cries. We want squirts. We want screams. We want bubbles and snot and all the things that come with children Um, and college kids. So you guys are welcome to do that too if you want. Well, this morning on our first Sunday of Advent, we are taking a little trip down memory lane. It's a window into my history and perhaps into yours if you have any sort of Christian background that spans the time of a few years. And if not, and you're relatively new to this whole thing, this is a great chance to gain some insight into why so many people are finally talking about religious trauma and its great impact on the condition of the global church today. So let me set the scene for you. Little baby emo Andy, 16 years old, brand new to youth group, to church, learning about heaven, hell, and my personal responsibility to evangelize my friends and family. The year is 2000. We survived Y2K, and the OG DC Talk just dropped the ultimate conservative Christian bop, I wish we'd all been ready. Right? If you are unfamiliar, allow me to read you some of the lyrics, and please accept my genuine apology in advance. Life was filled with guns and war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. The children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. It's so hard for me not to sing this. I wish we'd all been... I won't. It's the reason I'm not on the worship team. And there's no time to change your mind The sun has come, and you've been left behind. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears, and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. And there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. The father spoke, the demons died. How could you have been so blind? There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Now, you might be absolutely cringing right now. You might be remembering. If you are, you're old. I don't know what to tell you. You might be trying really hard not to laugh at the idea of me and my high school friends singing this in the car to hype ourselves up, to go witness to people. But whatever response you're having, this song and our passage are made infinitely more complicated when we start to compare the two. 
Jesus is the one speaking in Mark. He's teaching after his entry into Jerusalem, and he's having a conversation with four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew is thrown in there for good measure. Just prior, he had foretold the destruction of the temple and continued to talk about how things would be at the end. This kind of writing is called apocalyptic discourse. Here's your $5 word for the morning. And in this case, it's sandwiched between the teachings about the expanding kingdom of God and the ever-growing plot to kill Jesus. It is complicated and it is scary and it is 1,000% why and likely many of you felt pressure to bring your friends and family to church. I will never forget how proud my youth leader was when I brought a friend who was Mormon to youth group. When she didn't come back a second time because, you know, she had a church, uh, my youth leader asked me about her for weeks, tried to get me to give her her phone number so she could reach out, prayed for her soul. Whether or not she intended to, she transmitted a message to me, and that message was very clear. Somehow we had the answer, and no one else did. And those without the answer were lost. They were lost in this life. They were lost in the life to come. And I'm sorry to say that kind of intensity followed me. When I became a youth leader myself some years later, a few of our students and I had an ongoing running joke that was based in this passage. One summer, we were prepping for camp, and I had to have the no bikinis at camp policy talk with them. I felt super, super, super uncomfortable. So I did what I still often do when I feel uncomfortable, and I made a joke, right? Love that deflection. I looked at this group of teenagers, and I said, you know, what if Jesus came back when you were in the pool? You wouldn't want him to look at you and say, you're not wearing that to heaven, are you? Mm Mm-hmm. You can judge me. I can take it. That mentality, that idea that Jesus could show up at any moment, that comes straight from Mark 13, from the idea that we are to be watchful, that we never know the hour when the Son of Man will return. Beware, keep alert. You don't know when it's going to happen. There's a lot of language in the New Testament that carries that same kind of tone that same element of watchfulness. It drives hypervigilance and paranoia, behavior management and anxiety. And yet, today is Hope Sunday. And this is the passage we've been given. The first Sunday of Advent. And we're to learn the lessons of the fig tree. I wonder where there is hope in working hard not to get caught. I wonder where there is hope in there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. But before we dig into those questions, if you are indeed sitting there, mind flashing back to the ways in which a more conservative or evangelical approach to faith pushed you to act in a way that you feel embarrassment or shame about, 
I hope you know that you were doing what you could with what you had. If there was a time in your life where your theology led you to fear for the eternity of the people you loved, and that in turn yielded words or actions that you now, in hindsight, deeply regret, there is space to forgive yourself. And there is space to own that and make repairs if that is what is needed. I'd encourage you to explore both of those realities as soon as you are ready. Hope is a funny thing. Hope opens us up to disappointment, to disillusionment, and to broken hearts. It keeps vision and dreams alive. Hope requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability, and hope holds us in an unsettling liminal space. It keeps us in the yes and not yet of this life. Hope both keeps us captive and captivates our imaginations. There's hope in this passage if we are willing to look for it. There is an interpretation beyond pay attention and tell your friends to pay attention if we are willing to look for it. So I want to read you verses 28 and through 31 again. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Mark is a really phenomenal writer very intentional writer, the most sparse of all of our gospels, and yet, in my personal opinion, the deepest and the most fun to do a little diving into. He is also the king of callbacks. I love a good Pixar movie where, you know, Sully is the rug and Nemo's swimming around in a tank where he doesn't belong. That's how Mark writes In chapter 11, just two chapters previous, there are four little stories that seem disconnected. They seem unimportant, but they are not. So first, Jesus comes to Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives, rides in on a donkey. There's a parade that later morphs into what we now know as Palm Sunday. And then Jesus went to the temple. Next, Jesus is hungry. Love that. Notices a fig tree filled with leaves, sees that it has no figs, and then in the ultimate moment of hangry, curses the tree. Third, Jesus clears the temple. We all love this story, those of us who have heard it, because I I can resonate with a deeply angry Jesus. He drives out everyone who is buying things, turns over the tables of people who are selling and exchanging money, just got real intense and weird with it. He was having absolutely none of what was going on. Finally, the disciples saw (coughs) that the fig tree that Jesus cursed had withered down to its roots. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus responded, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. What does that have to do with a fig tree? And what does that have to do with end times? So we jump back to chapter 13. We have Jesus forecasting the destruction of the temple while sitting on the Mount of Olives, followed by the lesson of the fig tree. If it seems like a similar format to chapter 11, it's because Mark wrote it that way on purpose. Apocalyptic writings as a genre most often utilize to encourage the audience that eventually things were going to get better. In scripture, apocalyptic literature was employed when speaking out against oppression, injustice, and the pain and suffering present in this world. Authors would write apocalyptic style in code to avoid having their words understood by those they were denouncing. So if we break Mark's codes, or more accurately, we read the work of really smart biblical scholars who have actually already broken the code for us, these disparate pieces, figs, and a mountain, and a temple, start to come together to paint a fuller picture of what on first pass is a very unsettling passage. <clears throat> Excuse me. The fig tree that Jesus curses at first glance seems to be flourishing. Mark 11 says that he saw a tree filled with leaves and upon examination saw there were no figs. When Jesus is hungry and he needs this bushy tree to actually provide for him, it has no fruit. The temple should be a place where all are treated fairly, all are welcome, all can freely encounter God, where people are praying for forgiveness for themselves and others. It was never intended to be a marketplace. After the temple was constructed, the Mount of Olives yielded oil that was used to light the lamps in the temple and to anoint kings and high priests. Jesus, king and high priest, was arrested at the foot of the Mount of Olives, a place where he should have been anointed. Nothing in these stories were as they should be, and that is the entire point. Through these contradictions, Mark is highlighting our need, the world's need for Jesus to restore things to how they always should have been. He is actively opposing high control religion that excludes and places burdens on its followers. He is accusing the leaders of the Jewish faith of failing to bear something nourishing and good and reminding those who follow Jesus that he will endure and provide even after incredible suffering. The legacy of the fig tree is hope. It is a promise that Jesus will not abide showy, empty religious practices without impact. That when growth is happening as it is in Mark 13, Jesus is near. We can recognize the work of the kingdom, not by its leaves, but by the figs it provides because it changes the world. 
changes the world of just one person over and over and over again. That is where hope resides. That is the spirit, the presence of God in our lives. That's where the magic happens. Friends, this passage isn't about scaring our friends and family into some great cosmic battle. It isn't even about securing eternity, whatever that means. It's about the mission of Christ in each and every moment. It's about justice. It's about staying faithful to the invitation that God gives to make a softer, more equitable society. It is about hope. It's about the idea that despite what something looks like on the outside, goodness is measured by impact. And that we, as people who are interested or following Jesus, have the opportunity to nourish each other and those around us. UBC, may we have the courage to share the hope we have with those in need of it without pressure or expectation, but simply because it is good. May we recognize that sharing our hope is a gift. It is not a demand. And may we work with the Spirit in her work to make all things new. Amen. We have this beautiful practice here where we sit and allow the Spirit to speak to us. Uh, We invite her to correct anything I've said incorrectly to remind us of a new truth. If you are in this moment uh, reflecting on days of old and you need to work to invite forgiveness into your life, uh, to be patient, to be gracious with yourself, I invite you to do that now as well. Uh, But it's a communal practice that I'm thankful that we get to share.